Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Emma Donahue is an award-winning, Oscar-nominated writer and author based in London, Ontario. Originally from Dublin, Ireland, Donahue has written several novels, short story collections, and children's stories. She adapted her 2010 book, Room, into a screenplay for an Academy Award-winning film of the same name, which earned Brie Larson a, a few different Best Actress awards, including an Oscar in 2016. Donahue's latest novel is The Pull of the Stars, which is set in Dublin in 1918, chronicling three days in a maternity ward at the height of the Great Flu, where expectant mothers were in particular peril and supplies and expertise were not always easy to come by. Written and edited before the COVID-19 pandemic ravaged modern life, The Pull of the Stars was published by HarperCollins and is such a riveting work by Donahue It was shortlisted for Canada's most prestigious annual literary award, the 2020 Scotiabank Giller Prize. As part of the Eden Mills Writers' Festival's virtual and interactive In Your Own Backyard literary series, Emma and I recently had a conversation and also fielded questions from webinar participants, all of it about the Pull of the Stars and its fictional and factual origins, her research-oriented writing process, the book's eerie prescience about our modern struggles with a plague, her own future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control and Massey Hall's concert film series live at masseyhall.com where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free, including performances by past podcast guests like Basha Bulat, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 563rd episode of Creative Control, featuring the very gifted and talented writer Emma Donahue, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Please consider supporting Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Mark Lee Morrison from the podcast Low Profile. I live in Olympia, Washington with my wife and two daughters, and I support Vishkana's creative control on Patreon because I appreciate his journalistic integrity. Vish talks with a lot of artists I care about, and he never asks any boring questions. I love hearing his interviews, and as a Patreon supporter, I get to hear even more of them. If you enjoy creative control too, I implore you to join me as a sustaining contributor. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Good evening, everyone. My name is Vish Khanna. I'm a journalist, broadcaster, and podcaster. Earlier this year, my family and I moved from Guelph, Ontario to Edmonton, Alberta, and everything in the world has been perfectly fine ever since. On behalf of our organizers tonight, let me say welcome to the Eden Mills Writers Festival online series, In Your Own Backyard. This event is being presented in partnership with Idea Exchange. Although we are gathering virtually, we would like to recognize and offer our respect to the Attawadron people and the Mississaugas of the New Credit, on whose traditional territory the village of Eden Mills resides. May we who dwell on or visit this land and these waters be good stewards and honor those who came before us through positive action. Thank you for joining us this evening for our book club event featuring The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donahue. I know a lot of you participated in pre-discussions hosted by Idea Exchange, and I'm so pleased to be here to interview Emma tonight and to ask her some of your questions. There is a Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, and you can type your questions there. Before this session is through, I'll ask Emma as many of your questions as I possibly can. I'd like to start everything off now by welcoming tonight's special guest, who's an internationally acclaimed best-selling author whose latest novel is called The Pull of the Stars. I have a copy of it right here. It's right there. See? It's my own copy. Let's say hello to Emma Donahue. Hello, Emma. Hi, Vish. Hi, all of you as well, I'm going to imagine we're all at Eden Mills. I think we're on one of those slope surfaces. I like the slopes best at Eden Mills. Yeah, it's lovely. I'm going to imagine picnic blankets and, you know, ripe strawberries. <laughs> That's great. You put us right there. I feel like I'm there right now. That's amazing. So, Emma, for those of you, uh, those of us, uh, those of us who may not be as familiar with you, those joining us here tonight, can you contextualize yourself a little bit? Who are you, Emma Donahue? Sure, sure. And like so many Canadians, I'm from somewhere else, but very happy to be here. <laughs> So um, I'm an Irish writer, uh, first 20 years in Ireland, then eight years in England and Canada for the last 22. I fell in love with a Canadian and ended up in London, Ontario, much to my surprise. And I've been oddly content here. And um, I suppose I'm best known for my fiction, especially my novel Room, um, which became a film, at which point I realized that nobody really cares about books at all. They're just excited about the film. <laughs> it's a sobering realization. Now, how did, um, what, what made you think that, though? Everyone likes your books. Everyone likes books. Who doesn't like books? Well, I thought so, but the level of excitement, even among my own friends, when when I was going to the Oscars, you know, I realized that nothing about my book career had ever excited them. You know, there, there was no bookish equivalent of, of the excitement that the Oscars caused. Well, it's a very so anyway, it's a very Canadian thing when the American the Americans notice us, we get very excited. 
And so with my my Irish and my English friends, my friends in France, you know, they were all just as excited about the Oscars. But anyway, mostly I'm a book person. Um, I also write plays. uh, These days I write a lot of TV and film, though very little, which has actually reached the screen because that's how it is in that world. I've written books for children and I I toggle between contemporary and historical projects, I would say, and very often fact-based ones. So the pull of the stars um, is not based on any particular real historical person, but it's based on a very factual thing, which was the flu pandemic of 1918. Yes, it's a very uh, eerily timely uh, release, as I'm sure you've discussed with others, and we'll get to that uh, 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 tonight, I'm sure, as well. Can you briefly summarize what The Pull of the Stars is actually about beyond what you just mentioned, the fact that it does deal with the uh, flu pandemic of 1918? How would you summarize the plot of this book? It's set over three very busy days in a maternity ward um, of a Dublin hospital. And it's about a nurse called Julia Power, a nurse midwife. And she finds herself, because of understaffing, suddenly in sole charge of this little um, improvised, jerry-rigged, um, it's really a storeroom that's been turned into a three-bed ward for women who are in late pregnancy and have this terrible new flu. Because that flu, um, it hit pregnant women hardest and it brought on terrible complications. So she's basically trying to get them, them through the twin medical crises of delivery and flu. And she's really serving the people of the Dublin slums, um, very poor women who are often there on their you know 10th or 12th pregnancy. So the novel is about Julia and um, a doctor who, who comes in and out to help, um, who is the only real historical character in the book, um, she, Dr. Kathleen Lynn, who was not only a doctor, but she was on the run from police for her revolutionary activities at the time. And then the third main character is Bridie Sweeney, uh, a nobody, a completely untrained, uneducated um, volunteer who is there to help out and who becomes crucially important to Julia because she's the second pair of hands that Julia so desperately needs to get these poor women through the next three days. Well, it's a remarkable book, if I might say, and I thought to give people even more of a flavor for it, uh, is it possible for you to uh, engage us in a reading, a, a passage from the book? And sure. if, if so, do you want to contextualize it or are we best just to hear what you have to say first and, and, and go um, from there? It's very near the beginning, and um, basically it's 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 uh, Halloween in uh, 1918, and Julia has come in on the by cycling and then getting the tram to the hospital. So this is when she first enters her big Dublin hospital. It felt colder inside the hospital than out these days. Lamps were being kept turned down and cold fires meagerly fed. Every week, more flu cases were carried into our wards and more cots jammed in. Our hospital's atmosphere of scrupulous order, which had survived four years of wartime disruption and shortages and even the Easter Rising's six days of gunfire and chaos, that scrupulous order was finally crumbling under this burden. Staff who fell sick with the flu disappeared like pawns from a chessboard. The rest of us made do, worked harder, faster, pulled more than our weight, but it wasn't enough. This flu was clogging the whole works of the hospital. Well, not just the hospital, I reminded myself, the whole of Dublin, the whole country. As far as I could tell, the whole world was now a machine grinding to a halt. Across the globe, in hundreds of languages, I supposed, signs were going up urging people to cover their coughs. We had it no worse here than anywhere else. Self-pity was as useless as panic. No sign of our hospital porter this morning. I hoped he wasn't off sick too. There was only a charwoman sluicing the marble with carbolic around the base of the blue-robed virgin. As I hurried past admitting towards the stairs to maternity fever, my ward, I recognised a junior nurse behind her mask. She was red-spattered from bib to hem like something out of an abattoir. Standards were really slipping. Nurse Kavanagh, I said, are you just out of surgery? She shook her head and she answered hoarsely. Just now, on my way here, Nurse Power... A woman insisted I come see to a man who'd fallen in the street. Quite black in the face he was, clawing at his collar. I put my hand on the junior's wrist to calm her. She went on in gulps. I was I was trying to sit him up on the cobblestones and undo his, his collar studs to help him breathe. Very good, I said. But he let out one great coffin. Nurse Kavanagh gestured at the blood all over her with widespread tacky fingers. And I could smell it on her, harsh and metallic. Oh, my dear, I said, has he been triaged yet? But when I followed her eyes to the draped stretcher on the floor behind her, I guessed that the stranger was past that point, beyond our reach. 
Whoever had brought a stretcher out into the road and helped Nurse Kavanagh carry him into the hospital must have abandoned the two of them here. I crouch now to put my hand on, under the sheet and check the man's neck for a pulse. Nothing. I think that is probably a, a representative sample in that if that was too gory for you, <laughs> the rest of the novel will be entirely too much. <laughs> so that was a test of my readers, really. I will say I, I tend to do most of my reading at uh, at night. And so uh, I've been saying to my wife lately, like, let's not watch the news or to have big big life discussions right before bed. It's too disturbing. We need to relax. And then I read your book and I have to go to sleep. It was very difficult, Emma, if I might say. I'm not in so I don't mean to offend you. I just I found it hard. It's a hard book, isn't it? It is. I don't think you can write a, an easy read about a pandemic. And <laughs> um, you know, the funny thing is it might seem as if I'm trying to comment on on our times, but I wrote the entire book before COVID was ever heard of. Um, I started it back in October 2018 um, because I was on a train to Toronto and I read an article about the um, centenary of the flu pandemic, which I'd known about but never really looked at closely before. And I was so gripped by the atmosphere of sort of, you know, urban desolation, this busy modern society in all these cities all over the world grinding to a halt yeah. and people trying to get on with their jobs and get on with their lives while terrified of this invisible germ. So yeah, I, I wrote and, and sold the whole novel and I was just doing final touches, uh, delivered the last draft and, and then suddenly COVID. So um, I, I, I didn't put in anything at all about our times and yet there are echoes in every page. It's, a, it's an eerie experience. Right. So uh, just to be clear here, are you a, a soothsayer? Are you a wizard? Uh, are you a ghost? Why do you? Why did you manage to write a book that really predicted everything we're going through right now to some extent? There, I will say, like throughout the book, there are these signs uh, that the uh, oh, the government posters, the government yeah. posters, yeah. and there's messages on the posters uh, urging people how to behave, and it seemed very eerily similar to some of the messaging we've we've been receiving. So there is obviously contemporary resonance. How do you feel as you're handing in your manuscript in March, I believe, of 2020, your final draft, and then what's going on in the world, but a lot of the things happening in your book, how do you feel? Well, first of all, I'm not claiming any predictive gifts. I, you know, I, I've read quite a few good novels about pandemics, um, uh, such as, say, Station Eleven, Eleven. Um, or uh, Thomas Mallon, I think, did a lovely one about 1918. So, you know, I, I think there's probably a pandemic novel at least every year, and we're only noticing the handful of them this year because it happens to be coincidental with COVID. But also, when I handed it in, I, I didn't, it honestly didn't occur to me because I was so taken up with um, final rehearsals for the uh, the theatre production of Room, which was about, it was starting at the Grand in London and was about to move to Burbage. And anyone who's ever been involved in a theatre production will know you just get so entirely caught up. It's like falling in love with the entire group, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was entirely preoccupied with that. And then that was cancelled on its opening night on the 13th of March. So I honestly wasn't giving any thought to whether the news headlines were echoing my novel, you know, and then I was rather bewildered when my publishers said, instead of publishing it next year, let's go ahead and bring it out this summer. I honestly didn't know publishers could move that fast. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, in the, in the literary world, you're used to your books taking a year or maybe two. Um, so, so yeah, I was, I was really startled. But, you know, I am glad to have a chance to make this story part of the conversation because so many of those same issues come up, not just about germs and masks, but about poverty and how it weakens people and it is a pre-existing condition, you know, and pandemics um, in a way just, just show up the fault lines in our society. They don't, they don't equalize at all. Um, so, so I've, I've been really, glad to be part of the conversation about this. You mentioned that you read an article about the centenary of the pandemic, the flu, uh, in, in, I guess you read it in 2018. Was there anything else going on in contemporary life in terms of, you know, kind of zeitgeist stuff? Was there anything going on, anything in the air that you thought this book and these characters uh, maybe reflected, you know, something contemporary, because I picked up on some things uh, beyond the obvious, the pandemic uh, that is depicted in the book and the, the one we're uh, enduring right now. Was there anything else going on that you wanted to kind of comment on via these uh, characters? No, 
not not consciously. I mean, that's the thing about the zeitgeist. It's all around you. You know, if you pay any attention at all or you even talk to your friends. So I, I don't know why I suddenly got so interested in the in the flu pandemic. What do you think? What else did you pick up on? Well, you mentioned classism there, and there's been uh, a lot more dialogue about the wealth disparity and, and the way we function as a society, uh, the haves and the have-nots. I don't mean to use cliches here, but it's it's kind of true when we talk about healthcare, who gets it, who doesn't. Uh, but I was also, I think around the, the time that you read that article, uh, we finally ha- had our first, I think, real 21st century reckoning about misogyny and sexism and the role of women, uh, their bodies, uh, who controls them, uh, the, the way men view them, the way, uh, the way men disparage women in particular, um, we've, you know, and, and the way men disparage people who just aren't men. Um, and I thought about some of the interactions going on uh, in this uh, novel between uh, some of the orderlies, some of the, the men in these uh, in these situations and the women uh, and their roles and how they intertwine, I got the impression you were making some potentially some kind of comment about that. Is that not was that not on your mind? No, no, it's, it's more that it's always been on my mind, I suppose. I mean, I've been very consciously a feminist since my teens. So in a way, the, the Me Too cultural moment wasn't quite such a shock to me. I mean, it was just, it was frankly heartening to see um, things being discussed everywhere rather than just as a sort of specialist topic. But I would say that, that feminism has probably informed all my work. So in a way, the most political decision I made in writing this book was of, of all the people I could have focused on, I decided to focus on pregnant women because I came across this fact that they, they were hit so hard by the flu. And also, I suppose there's not that much written about, about childbirth, considering that it's such an extraordinary you know, life event and that so many, so many women go through it. So I suppose in choosing to focus on a maternity ward, I really did sort of stake a claim for... The, the importance and interest of, of what these women are living through. And I, I tried, because it's the novel is set during World War One. I, I tried to give the maternity ward almost the atmosphere of the trenches, you know, like yeah. we're all going through horrors together and blood will be shed, but there's a sense of camaraderie, um, not just among the staff, but among the, the laboring women too. Um, and, and you know, that, that, that passionate longing that Julia has to, to save these women's lives. You know, her own mother died in childbirth, but she doesn't want to, she yeah. doesn't want to lose any more of them. And she has a, she has a watch, a, a, you know, a watch in a case and she marks on it every time she loses a patient because she can't bear for them to go uncounted, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a book very much about gender, I suppose. And the, the kind of key conversation about that is when um, one of the orderlies who I, I gave the rather cruel name of groin, um, uh, spelled with a Y, you know, but he's, he's, um, he's disconcerted that women over 30 are about to be granted the vote in yeah. uh, November 1918. And, and he says, you know, you, you lot don't really deserve it because you don't, you know, you don't serve, you don't serve the king. You don't pay the blood tax are going to war mm-hmm. and you know julia's gesturing around at this board and saying you know these women play pay the blood tax all the time well there also seems to be a, a real comment on hierarchy and confidence i think of uh, you know how julia is very deferential to some of the people that are supposedly above her but what we learn about her as we go is that she's very knowledgeable and very adept at, at what she does but she has this confidence issue and then she meets a young character who, as you mentioned at some point, I think that Bridie was an, is a nobody who has no real self-consciousness about trying things and doing things. Are you making a comment about women and confidence as well in this book? Well, I'm very interested in the job of nurse. This is uh, the second time I've done a novel about a nurse because my 2016 novel, The Wonder, was about a nurse too. Nurses are a fascinating um, traditional women's job because they have a lot of knowledge and training, and yet they, they've always had a low status in, in pre-modern times. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they've always been seen as just doing their kind of naturally feminine nurturing thing. But, you know, for any actual key decision, they have to wait for the doctor. So the, the, the irony is that if I wrote about Julia during an ordinary week, she'd spend a lot of the time just nodding and, you know, carrying bedpans. But because the hospital is so understaffed, yeah. she actually gets to step into a kind of a leadership role. I mean, it's a grueling role. Um 
Um, so it's not as if she gets to boss anyone around. It's more that she, she needs to have 10 hands. But she gets to, to do things in a slightly more modern and individualistic way. And she gets to break some of those rules. For instance, she's not meant to tell the patients her name. She's, she's always meant to keep a lot of reserve. I read a lot about her nurses were trained. And there was this huge emphasis on, you know, being ladylike and composed and neat. So it's not so much that Julia is, you know, at an individual level, shy or underconfident. It's more that she's 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 working in a system which is very much based on the military, you know, where each nurse obeys the nurse above her who obeys the doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the flu makes everything a bit crazy and and actually loosens things up and makes it possible for her to have some real agency, even in the middle of all the chaos. Yeah. We've been talking a little bit about contemporary resonance uh, in terms of the setting and, and circumstances of your book as they relate to what we're all going through now. What about medicine or, or science? Uh, I was you, you write very thoroughly um, about the medical practices uh, that go into these, and often cases they are emergency births, they're unpredictable births because in most of the cases, uh, in fact, I believe in all the cases, the women are sick with this this grip of this flu. So um, what were you, what, uh, first of all, do you have a background in science or did, is this all research? Oh, I'm, I'm honored you would ask the question. <laughs> no, no background. No, I have a background in nothing. All I've, all I've done since kindergarten is read and write, read and write. <laughs> I have to do a lot of research. And of course, with some books you can be, you know, no, I always do a lot of research, but sometimes you can be a little bit vague about certain aspects of, of something, you know, because it doesn't it's okay to keep it in the realm of the fictional, but that is so not true when it comes to medicine and childbirth, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I really had to be believable and had to speak truly about these things. Um, so so I did a huge amount of research and, and you know, very, very luckily for me, um, I found a midwife to consult who lived in Hamilton and she was, she was in quarantine as she was advising me in April. And then I also had a copy editor at my New York publishing house who um, is an emergency room doctor as well. So she was literally wow. going between COVID wards and, and working on my novel, you know, um, which sounds rather unbearable for her, but she likes that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I really tried to get the medicine right. And um, in particular, I tried to kind of focus on the, the, the drama of childbirth and the unpredictability of it, because of course it's not an illness, you know, it can, it can be something you dread and then it all goes wonderfully and it's over in a couple of hours, or it can be something you think is going to be a breeze and then yeah. suddenly um, for instance, um, uh, our first, you know, I, I gave birth to both our babies and, um, um, our, uh, I remember I, I haven't read the section in the book about pre about, um, premature births because I thought, Oh, I'm not one of those women they mention as a risk group. I'm going to be fine. You know, my mother had eight children. So, and then a tree fell on our house and startled our son out of me five weeks early. And you know, wow. I was honestly terrified he'd be born dead because I hadn't read that section in the book. So that would be an example of how unpredictable birth can be. But as a narrative, as a narrative element, birth is amazing because it can be, you know, too slow, too slow, stuck, stuck, yeah. and then everything's fine in five minutes, or it can all go wonderfully. And then after, afterwards, the woman could get a fever and die. So it's, it's full of surprises. Um, so it was absolutely brilliant to write about. And I really enjoyed getting into all those nitty gritties, you know. Yeah, I, I used a lot of medical, modern medical sources, by the way, because often they're just they're more accurate and they would let me really understand what was going on, even if I then tried to take away all the, um, you know, procedures or or medications or equipment that they didn't have in 1918. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I was born uh, many weeks premature. And uh, to be honest, I'm still very impatient. I don't have a lot of patience. I just need to get things done. I, I actually was curious, you know, there's been lots of medical advances in various things, but I actually was struck by your depiction of childbirth in 1918 as it relates to how childbirth works now. And I wondered if you, in your research, because you mentioned that you, I assume you had to research what was going on in that era, but you said you also read more contemporary or modern um, medical uh, treaties or whatever you want to call them, uh, uh, you know, journals about childbirth today. Is it, was it similar? Is it quite similar now to the way it was, uh, you know, 102 years ago? Or are you blown away by how different it is? Well, it can be very, very different if you're in a place with great health care. But if you're not, or if you're somebody who's underserved by the medical system, 
um, you know, so many black women in America, for instance, have talked about how there they are in the country, in, in a country with all this great health care, and they are badly served. And so they have such terrible rates of complications and in, in childbirth. So I'm, I'm also thinking, say, of, of some of our very northern um, native communities where, you know, there, there, isn't, there aren't the resources and, and women have to you know, um, be flown south um, many weeks in advance and spend, you know, miserable, isolated times waiting. So it's not as if in North America we managed to treat all childbirths well. And then there are many parts of the world where women are laboring and, you know, uh, the nearest medical help is several days away. So, uh, you know, childbirth is still the most the most dangerous event for women and babies. And, um, you know, um, I, I knew somebody, a, a wonderful actress who did the um, audiobook of Room. She played Jack and... Um, she died giving birth to twins in New York City. So, mm-hmm. so that that was another thing that prompted this book, I suppose, this huh. feeling that you know that birth um, absolutely deserves having resources poured into it. Just because it's natural, just doesn't mean that it's not also dangerous. I'm very sad to hear that story, and uh, I sat, I'm sad for you in that regard. Um, as you were speaking, I did think of a moment in the book that resonated with me because in a preparation for the birth of our first child. Uh, we read a lot about, we ended up, I will say, you know, my wife and I, uh, both of our children were born uh, in our living room in Guelph uh, with a midwife present, and that was a choice we made. And some of it stemmed from reading we had done about, um, I don't know, the way childbirth had been not necessarily politicized, but at least commodified or something. Uh, we read a lot about cesarean sections and how sometimes a doctor will rush to judgment uh, or rush to that practice. And I know this can get into some sort of political dialogue that I'm not really hoping to get into with you, but there is a moment in your book where uh, Julia feels very strongly that a birth should occur one way and a male doctor walks in and sort of says, well, let's just do this. Let's get this over with. This is what needs to be done. I'm sure you're making a bit of a comment here and there in your book about natural childbirth versus interventions. Is that fair to say? Yes, I suppose it would be fair to say, yeah. I mean, you know, that I think the best is when all these things are available to you. You know, I was lucky enough, for instance, to have Ontario midwives um, give us such good care. But then when one thing went wrong, there was a doctor just outside yeah. the door who was able to rush in and effectively save my life, you know. So I, yeah. I thanked her in the back of this book. And it felt wonderful 16 years on to be able to, you know, pay my debts. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Everybody comes into my life expects me to put them in a novel, but... It feels very good to me to be able to, you know, thank those 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 midwives and those doctors um, even 16 years on. Yeah, I can't wait to read about this interaction in one of your future <laughs> novels. It's going to be great. Uh, we have some questions actually coming in over the uh, Zoom Q&A. Uh, so I'm going to get to one right now. This one comes from uh, Kathy Callahan. All of the characters and the character of, uh, oh, Bridie, Bridie is uh, amazing. Thank you so much for giving us a novel which is beautifully written, meaningful, and likely timeless. How do these characters form in your writing structure? I know the Doctor <laughs> is based on historical fiction. How about the other characters? It's a question that was on my mind as well. You've chosen to have one uh, factual character in this novel circulating among these creations of yours. Can you tell us more about uh, those characters, the ones that aren't real and where they came from? Sure, sure. Um, I meant them all to be invented, by the way. It's just that when I was doing my research for, you know, what what was going on for doctors in Ireland in 1918? I came across this real one, and she was not only a, a woman doctor, which was rare enough, but she was, you know, a revolutionary on the run from police. And she um, um, she was a feminist, and she was a labor rights activist, and she was living all her life with a woman, and she was kind of eccentric. So I couldn't actually keep her out. Dr. Kathleen then just sort of marched into the book. Um, but the other the other main character main characters are all made up, and... Julia, I suppose, started with her job. I think one of the most feminist things you can do in creating a character is to allow a woman's job to be to be the source of her rather than sort of adding it afterwards or and making her say primarily about who she loves. Yeah. And um, because Julia so loves her work, even though it's badly paid and she's overworked. Um, so really, in a way, I, I tried to give her all the strength she would need to be able to rise to the occasion and get through this this brutal week. And I, I tried to give her some supports, too, in that she lives in quite an unusual situation. She lodges with her brother and he's a, a veteran back from the war and he's mute. So, you know, he's kind of home, you know, on, on permanent sick pay um, uh growing them food in the allotment and cooking the dinner. So she almost has a wife, you know, it's, a, it's mm. an unusual setting. 
Um, and then Bridie, the, the volunteer, um, this is the only character I've ever written who is based on a government report in that, you know, you were asking what, what things in 2018 Canada fed into this book. So our, our national conversation about residential schools definitely did, because I was all too aware that in Ireland, we've had a very similar kind of breast beating about, you know, why we locked up such a high percentage of our population. And unlike in Canada, it wasn't a genocidal impulse towards anyone or any cluster of ethnic groups. It was basically our, our poor, our working class. You know, children would be plucked away from their families um, and, and sent to orphanages. Uh, we had Magdalene hospitals where so-called fallen women or even girls who seemed in some danger of becoming fallen women would be sent and sometimes stuck for life. We had mother and baby homes where Yes, the nuns would take you in if you were pregnant out of wedlock, but then you would have to serve one or in the case of a second baby, two years to kind of pay off um, the costs of their looking after you. So, so really it was a kind of a, a non-judicial system of imp imprisonment. And I decided that the Irish government did this huge in painful investigation into abuses at those um, residential institutions. And I read that report cover to cover and I decided to, I know it sounds strange, but I decided to find a character in there who would have suffered so much and yet would still have so much zest and curiosity and energy and all those qualities that the system couldn't squash. So rather than defining her as a victim, I suppose, I, I defined her as a kind of a, you know, a remarkable rose that would grow through the cracks. Yeah. Um, and I didn't use the more grueling stuff in the report. You know, there's so much stuff in there, you know, rapes and horrors and whippings and so on. And with Bridie, I just went for the subtler points about, you know, the kids being so hungry that they'd eat the, ca the candles in the church, that kind of thing. Or or um, there's a moment when she describes how she was punished for having curly red hair because that was seen as devilish, the devilish kind of hair. You know, So I was, as soon as I read that detail, I thought, okay, she's got to have curly red hair. Yeah, there's, I mean, as you're, thank you for that response. And I hope that answers the, the question um, in a satisfactory way for one of our uh, patrons here. Uh, yeah, that was, it's a remarkable response. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking about, all of the things that are, uh, you know, you summarize the book, and uh, it takes place in this uh, this ward primarily. But yes, there are all these interweaving aspects. There's a war that is cast a shadow on the characters and the book. There's the uh, the institutional. Uh, it's not even neglect. It's institutional uh, crime. It's malice. There. There's bureaucratic bull that these characters are navigating as well, if I might say. You know, those, those government notices, they were the most fun thing to write because they were based on, um, you know, I, I, I researched the flu all over the world. And so, I, you know, I'd come across some mention of what the Argentinian government said or what the Greek government said. And I'd go, oh, yeah, that's that's characteristic government bullshit there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so um, I, I tried just, just, sometimes they would rhyme, for instance, you know, they would, they would have little rhyming slogans about coughs and sneezes spread diseases. So I decided to make quite a few of these government lines um, rhyme and, um, and try to capture that weird tone that governments often use of kind of vagueness, you know, um, and like I'm thinking of, say, Boris Johnson um, telling the people of Britain to stay alert, you know, as if that could possibly tell them anything. Yeah. Stay alert. You know, right. it just implies really that if they catch COVID, it's their mistake. You, you have reminded me to remove the sign outside of my house that says coughs and sneezes spread diseases. I have that up right now. <laughs> You're right. It's not very effectual. I'm going to take it down. What I was getting at, though, is um, whether you can comment on whether or not your book is a meditation on family. I'm thinking of Julia and her brother. I'm thinking of the many orphans and lost mothers and lost fathers uh, in this book. And... Um, and and maybe like there's a primacy placed on traditional family values by some of the religious uh, figures in this book. Family is uh, really a, a a big part of this book. What does family mean? Uh, who gets to have a family? Uh, what does it mean when your family is taken away from you in terms of social stature? What are you saying about family in this book? I suppose it's a theme I have in quite a few of my books that um, I know it seems obvious, but that families come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, I'm a big enthusiast for family and I grew up as the youngest child in a very traditional family. And I've ended up in a much less traditional family. I mean, it's still sort of nuclear in that it's me and my partner and our two kids. But because, you know, we're lesbian mothers, it, it doesn't look very typical. Luckily, we live in Ontario where we're just fine. In other parts of the world, we'd be the freaks. Right. And, you know, even in, in books like, say, Room, I was very interested in exploring a unit which really works. It's a very effective family, but then is seen by outsiders as this kind of sad, diminished 
simulacrum of the real thing. Yeah. So, so yes, I'm really intrigued by what are the key elements. You know, Julia and her brother, for instance, they really are managing to make it work. You know, she's sad that she can't heal him, but, but you know, they, they're there for each other. And um, I, I knew from the start that I wanted Julia to have something nice to eat in this book, for instance, because um, my Irish novels tend to feature fairly traditional, hideous Irish food. You know? <laughs> I know it's common to go on about the wonderful food of your ancestors, but let's not kid ourselves. You know, Ireland is known for a lot of overboiled vegetables. So I thought in World War One it would be even worse because there'd be a lot of, you know, turnip and, you know, substitute uh, this stuff they called war bread, for instance, and they were never too sure what was in it. Yeah. Um, so I decided there has to be a moment when Julia gets something nice to eat. So I decided that it would be her birthday and that her brother would find her a couple of truffle chocolates and one orange brought all the way from Italy. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. So the, the non-speaking tenderness of her brother is, is in there from the start as, you know, this this source of comfort. You know, we've been talking about the, the contemporary resonance of this book in terms of uh, it being set during a pandemic. One of the things that maybe occurs to me uh, in terms of the family stuff is some of us, depending on where you live in Canada or in the world, you're kind of trapped in a home with your family. And uh, we were hearing lots of stories about this. Like, I have to spend all my time with my family. Normally, I don't see them as much. Does that occur to you? Like, in terms of you're talking about uh, Julia and her brother's relationship. They've got kind of an odd dynamic that way. Uh, but they have to love each other. They're family. They, they're all they have. And a lot of what's going on in this book, uh, in terms of the characters and the backstories we hear about, some of them very horrific home lives, but they have they have no choice. There's a pandemic. They're kind of trapped in these small quarters with each other. Does, does it occur to you that that's actually part of what we're all living through right now is not only, you know, having to kind of be on lockdown and self-isolation, but we're not in self-isolation. Some of us, we're isolating with other people and we have to like them as best we can. Does that occur to you as well? It's true, but it, but I found that so many people have ended up, okay, initially feeling claustrophobic, but then weeks later reporting that they've actually had quite relaxing times playing. You know, we were playing tiddlywinks at one point. We got through all the cooler board games and we found ourselves playing tiddlywinks. Oh, my. Um, so I don't mean to idealize it. You know, I've been really been pitying my friends who've got small kids because that's that's just so full on. It's just, you know, you can't get away from them. But with teenagers where you can do your separate stuff and then get together at the meals. I've really enjoyed having them around. Um, but then we've had enough space. I think it really helps to have, you know, a, a porch and a garden and so on. And down down here in London, Ontario, it's it, it's not been at all like it would be in a an area of Toronto where you can't go for a walk yeah. without fearing that you're within two feet of people. Yeah. So so yeah, I'm very interested in in the comforts as well as the um, confinements of a family. And um, as you say, um, because in the book, um, people are constantly being you know, ripped out of the family structure. So, you know, there are mothers lost, there are babies lost, um, and there are women with too many children. I was very interested in the, um, you know, the, the fact that Ireland was a relentlessly pro-natalist state until very recently, yeah. um, uh, in that, you know, a lot of these these women really were, were pushed by their working class culture and sort of Irish nationalism, and in particular by the Catholic Church, to just pump out as many babies as possible. Yeah. So, you know, it's no accident that my mother had eight of us, and yet my mother's daughters have only had maximum two or three and sometimes none. So it's been a massive change. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. We do have some more questions coming in. Um, I'm going to be conscious of the fact that some of them do include some spoilers. So let me navigate these as I read them to you. I think this is safe to say as it follows what we've been saying. Uh, some of the women in the novel uh, don't survive. Uh, do you struggle to write the deaths of characters? And how do you detach from these characters and not let their deaths affect you personally too much. I mean, this might be a question for your overarching uh, expression. How do you write characters and lose them, uh, Emma? How does that work? I I always feel so bad answering this question. When I write a death scene, I thoroughly enjoy it. That's going to sound cruel, isn't it? I just mean <laughs> my my pleasure and my satisfaction is not writing happiness. It's writing something that will move my readers. So, of course, I want to move them sometimes to happiness and and you know it's not all about about grim things but if the death feels right in the story if it seems the right pattern to weave and if i've put all the right little mentions in that will then make you desperately care 
when somebody dies, then I feel really good. And so I'm not depressed by that. I'm often depressed by the background research. I mean, reading this long government report um, into the Irish residential institutions, that was just horrifying because yeah. they're all absolutely real. But yeah. if I'm creating a fiction and I get to the moment when what you need is the, the splotch of dark paint, as it were, it feels really good to me. It's very satisfying. Okay. It's much harder to write the, the the bits where they're just kind of getting on with it and having cups of tea. You know, right. drama Actually, um, you know, way more satisfying to write. Well, I appreciate that answer. Uh, that question came in from Wesley Wilson. Thank you for the question, Wesley. Uh, it leads uh, your 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 answer. I think uh, Emma leads into this next question that comes to us from someone calling themselves anonymous attendee, some mysterious person here. As a physician, I was amazed at your level of detail regarding labor and delivery. It was a good reminder of how relatively advanced their knowledge was in 1918. Was it difficult to actually research the subject of labor and delivery uh, during that era? Yes, it was. It was because, um, for instance, if you look at midwifery as a, as a tradition, there was very little written down, say, by midwives about what they did. Um, so you would get, you know, the, the chief doctor of the day writing his, his instructions to um, obstetrical nurses. But that's very different from knowing what midwives did in practice. For instance, here's a, a highly concrete example. Um, during my first birth, we had a, a doula hired to look after me as well as midwives. It was like it was like a royal birth. I felt all these all these women looking after me. And the doula taught Chris the knack of pressing on the little dimples in the small of my back, and the pain just almost disappeared. And um, I could find no record in any books of of when they started doing these particular forms of, of counter pressure. Hmm. And yet I feel sure it's not a high tech thing. You know, people must have been pressing each other in the right place in the back to cut pain. But that was the kind of thing nobody wrote down. So yes, there were huge gaps where I'd have to, for instance, um, look at modern websites about, you know, advice for women on what moves to do to try and turn your baby if it was facing the wrong way. And then I would say to myself, is it plausible they'd have had some of these in 1918? So sometimes there's guesswork. And sometimes I was reading, you know, uh, letters to the Lancet about whether or not they should do a particular operation and did did it have a worse chance of, uh, of of killing the mother than a cesarean did. So sometimes it was highly technical research published at the time. And then sometimes I would look at modern, fairly reliable sources like, I don't know, the Mayo Clinic's website. Uh, and then I would say to myself, okay, but which of these things did they have in 1918? And often if I stripped away, you know, the, the IV fluids or the ventilator or the... Um, the um, uh, blood transfusion from previously donated blood on the oxygen machines, I would find they didn't know any of these things. Right. Um, so, so often it was just by, by deduction, by stripping away. And often I would find that in 1918, all they could do was watch and wait. They might be well aware of what something was, but they couldn't do much about it. And in particular with the flu, they could do almost nothing. So they were doling out hot whiskey as a kind of a comfort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was there anything in your research about what went on in 1918? You mentioned some of the things that were missing from their 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 tool belt, if you will, that we have now. But was there anything about what occurred in 1918 and practices then that prompted you to cast some judgment on any practices going on now? Like, I know you're not a doctor. We've established that. That's a good question, actually. Um I'm sure you read things and you're like, I can't believe they do. I can't believe they still do this, or I can't believe they don't just do what they did a hundred and hundred years ago. Like, did that occur to you? No, mostly I was appalled. I have to say, <laughs> even at the the psychological differences. For instance, if you had a stillbirth in 1918, the standard protocol was that the nurse would literally box it up, wrap it in brown paper in a shoebox, put it on a high shelf, never refer to it again, and the woman would be encouraged to not think about it. I mean, that seems like bad, bad psychological treatment to me. So I, I, I'm trying to think of anything where I thought they did better in the old days. I mean, nurses nowadays might feel a bit harried by the need to do paperwork, but then it's it's really important too to try and, especially if it comes to assigning any blame, it's really good to have a record of what happened when. So so no, I think this in a way is a very pro-science book in that yes. um, uh, it, it's all about those moments when they didn't understand. For instance, they were they were looking for um, the bacterium that would cause the flu. And of course, they couldn't find it because it's a virus and viruses are much smaller and their microscopes uh, weren't powerful enough to show it. So um, they were literally blundering in the dark, you know. Yeah. And so they were trying out vaccines that couldn't work because they weren't the kind of vaccines that are based on an accurate understanding of what the thing is that you're fighting. So so mostly, mostly medicine did not have that much to offer. 
um, to the flu. And, you know, it had something to offer in terms of childbirth, but not at all what you would get nowadays. So, yeah. no, I'm I'm more glad than ever to be living now. <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah, no, we're all happy you're still alive and uh, that you survived the 1918 pandemic. I don't know where I came from with that one. We have an interesting question here from someone named uh, Kim Leonard. Uh, and I want to be careful because there is a, a bit of a reveal in the question. Uh, uh, for your purposes, Emma, she's wondering about the plot twist at the end uh, involving uh, the main characters. Uh, and uh, maybe you'll be able to intuit which plot twist I'm talking about. But uh, it's about their relationship. This seemed to follow through from the comments that Bridie made about breaking the rules. Was it a nod to the fact that people feel more free of constraints in extreme situations where they feel they can take more chances or open themselves up to other experiences than they normally would. Do you understand where I, I was yeah, a bit yeah. vague? Do you understand? Okay. No, and I find that a very persuasive reading actually, because, um, well, well, first of all, the fact that this is all set in an incredibly hyped atmosphere over three days in a, in a flu maternity ward, I think that allows the characters to get to know each other incredibly fast in a way that just wouldn't happen if it was three normal days. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, there are barriers between people. So usually Julia wouldn't be get wouldn't be wasting her time speaking to some untrained, uneducated volunteer, but they're literally thrown together. So I, I think of um, you know, books that are set um, that have the what what playwrights in the 17th century would have called the unities of time, space, and action. You know, like stories of say people stuck in a lift together. You know, they they act as an intensifier and they speed everything up. And in particular, they let people get close to each other very very fast. Yeah. And yes, they also sort of suspend the rules. I mean, Julia starts breaking, you know, petty rules of her profession quite early on, like she, she tells a patient her name because it just seems ludicrous in this atmosphere where they're literally, you know, bodily fluids are splashing all over each other. It seems ridiculous to be prissy and say, I'm not allowed to tell you my name. Yeah. And the same between um, between the staff. Yeah, so I suppose I, I, I did think it was plausible that, you know, um, events might really start to take on a rolling momentum in terms of their closeness that wouldn't have happened in other times. It wouldn't might not have happened a year later, even. Have um, you do you have you found? Sorry to interrupt you at the end there, but uh-huh. I, I I thought I, I just wanted to ask if you have found uh, that you're finding some rules, things we've been told have to be a certain way, uh, like in in the year 2020 as we're speaking. Are we? I, I have found that some of those rules are maybe not true like we don't need to do things a certain way uh oh you mean like like trousers people started buying just <laughs> clothes for their upper half yeah. i assure you i'm not stark naked from the waist i I, <laughs> I, I i don't get in trouble but i i am wearing anyway i'm not going to get into that my point is <laughs> no like things like uh when we, you know five years ago even companies would say you can't work from home that's bonkers and now all of they're like please work from home we'll figure it out we'll set you up we you can totally work from home don't come in here and things like that like have you broken any rules emma have you felt like bread you want me to pay for the bread i'm not paying for any bread i'm just taking this with me is it just like nihilism what is your take on that nihilism but i've i've relaxed about two things i feel my parenting has become extremely relaxed um i was always a you know a good humored parent but there was an awful lot of now let's get you to the ballet class, you know. Um, I'm quite, you know, a, educational. And my kids would say that I cannot let a paragraph go by without teaching them some historical fact or drawing some moral conclusion, you know. So I feel I've really relaxed a bit in my parenting because early on I thought we're all stuck here together, trapped, the four of us in this house. The key thing is for us to get on well. And also the key thing is for the kids to have some feeling of agency or being able to decide how to spend their time given that, so many freedoms of action have been taken away from them. Yeah. So I, I loosened up as a mother. And also I'm very used to, you know, um, being a busy bee and, you know, filling in the calendar with, with I would say, often very fun things, cultural events and so on. And so our family calendar is usually illegible with my yeah, yeah. scrolled in, um, you know, um, going to a film there, going to a concert there. And, and often my partner just groans to see how jam-packed I've made the calendar. But now since April, it's been blank and it's been oddly relaxing. It's so been, on those two fronts. It's been know, weird. Yeah, it's totally weird. Like prior to the pandemic and prior to moving to Edmonton, yeah, I was taking the kids to something every night, uh, some activity, and now it's nothing. But I think it's made me a bit more uptight. I'm, I'm trying to design a summer camp. And they're resisting. I'm like, hey, we got to do a thing where you do a word of the day. We go to the dictionary and we learn every word. And I, I'm going, 
I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing all of it wrong. This is not really the place for this conversation, Emma. I think you can help me become a better parent later. There is another. No, it's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it is. people. You know, we think of our characters as so fixed and we define ourselves. For instance, I bet that like me, you would define yourself as a culture vulture. You know, yeah. pride yourself on how much you fit in. And and we've all had to suspend those self-definitions. Like really hardworking people, in some cases, they can't do their job from home. So they've had to just have a long period of not doing their job. So so many of us have had our, our self-image rocked. Well, I think so. And then also you, as a parent, you want your kids to not, like we are suspending lots of things. But you don't want their my kids are nine and five, so I don't want their their knowledge or their you know appetite for information to go grow stagnant or stall or suspend, so yeah, I was trying to do like this day in history and and they kind of they were like, it's August, Dad, we gotta take a break here like this we're not doing this, we're not doing this now, I'm like, really, like I thought this would be fun, but anyway we're we're working it's it's a complicated time, complicated time for all of us uh there is a a couple, there are a couple more questions here, Emma, that come that have come in over the the Zoom here. Uh, what was the significance of having the novel take place over Halloween and feasts of All Saints and All Souls? Uh, this is a two part question. Let's go with the, this is from an anonymous attendee again. Emma, can you speak to that first of all? Well, anonymous attendee, well done, because this is the kind of thing that I don't think any of the reviews have noticed, but it's absolutely set over Halloween and the feasts of the All Saints and All Souls. It's, it's, it's like the way the film Coco is, you know, a Mexican meditation on, on death and family and it's set over the Feast of the Day of the Dead. Yeah. And yeah, I thought Halloween would not only be a good time to capture the kind of grotesquerie of a city where people are masked or fearful or, you know, children are drunk because they're given whiskey to try and fend off the flu. I mean, there's so much that's weird about this, this uh, you know, attempts to carry on normal life at a point where people are dropping dead in the street. And people are, for instance, changing colors. There's an element of the, you know, unintentionally carnivalesque about it because um, people would get a little, you know, pale Irish people would get a little faint pink glow and then go red in the face and then brown and then blue and purple and then black in the face, um, all because of cyanosis, you know, a lack of oxygen in their tissues. So so um, Halloween was definitely there to bring out the... Um, slightly weird carnivalesque aspects of the plot but also because it's 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 meant to be that moment of of contact between the living and the dead and julia and her job she's she's coming up against um you know death all the time and she's wanting to remember those who've died and try and keep more people alive and um i wanted early on to kind of personify death for her and i decided um i i went with i, I looked at a lot of sort of folklore about death and i went with this image of um, death as the the bone man this kind of skeleton yeah. grinning skeleton coming around from house to house yeah yeah so the follow-up question was uh, also do the section titles of red blue brown and black say something about what happens in those particular sections i think you kind you spoke to this just briefly uh, just now emma and we yeah, I, absolutely it was about it was about the color changes in in the face that that some flu patients would have but that would be an example of where you're always looking for a way to make your your topic, like say the flu, um, uh, sensory and, and specific and and concrete, you know, rather than speaking in the abstract. That's something fiction does so well, as it it roots things in the senses. Um, and by the way, the novel itself is called the Pull of the Stars because that was the the literal meaning of influenza. It's from the Italian word yeah. meaning like influence. It's the influence of the stars on us. So again, that's a way of taking a you know, an appalling worldwide phenomenon of a virus and its effects on human society. And it's a way of, of, of turning it into a concrete image, the idea of the stars, you know, plucking at us. Aren't the uh, chocolate truffles and the blood orange from Italy? Um, I'm not sure are the truffles they could be, but the blood orange certainly is, yes, yes. You know, and, and also after you write a novel, you often come across little details that should be in it. The other day I found from that wonderful uh, Twitter feed called Quite Interesting Facts, that disaster means ill-starred. That's from the Italian as well. I see. Disaster. So yeah. as, as much as this is set in Dublin, there's a, an Italian connection. You're the uh, that's in, that. Well, leave it at that for now. Again, I don't want to ruin anything, but there's some interesting uh, Easter eggs. We're talking about Halloween. I'm talking about Easter. We have a question in from uh, the Preston Book Club. Uh, they all read your book. Uh, this is uh, an aspect of the idea exchange, I believe. Uh, here's the question, Emma. Knowing what you know now about living through a global pandemic, would you have included more elements of hope in the novel? Well, that is cutting right to the chase, isn't it? What do you say there, Emma? 
No, I wouldn't because I was trying to capture the flu at its very worst, right? Like I could have chosen to 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 take one of those weeks in which it was milder or one of the, you know, the, the first or third waves, but I decided to go for the peak of the second wave. I wanted it to be a real, um, you know, face-to-face encounter with death. Um, being a, you know, a, a recovering Catholic, you know, I, I, I think of the three-day period as, as always about, you know, Jesus descending into hell and, um, you know, fighting with the demons. Um, so a, a three-day encounter with death. Um, so I would say there are crucial little bits of hope in there. You know, there are people treat each other quite well, for instance. If you have a lot of external conflict, meaning death is trying to kill your patients, you don't necessarily have to have people getting on badly with each other. So there's not much bickering or anything. There's a lot of um, solidarity and alliance. Um, and there, there are, you know, there are some happy endings in there and there are some moments of hope. Um, individuals or book clubs may feel that I have broken their hearts, to which I can only say that you just get this very strong instinct for what a book needs to be. And, and you don't always say to yourself, what does my reader want to have happen? It's more that you, you feel you know what, what has to happen. Yeah. And you're trying to get that sense of, of inevitability so that the last word on the page, it may, you know, the reader may cry, but it feels like the right word, the word that had to be spoken. Well said. Thank you for uh, speaking to that question. We have one more question uh, from uh, someone viewing uh, this uh, event tonight. What, but this is from Doriana. I'm going to butcher the name, and I apologize in advance. Doriana Basenya, I believe, is the name. What books have you enjoyed reading lately? And I will just add to thank you for the question, Doriana. Beyond that, also Emma, like we're all talking about, like Netflix and music we're listening to. Beyond books, I'm also just curious. What have you been consuming in terms of pop culture? Sure, sure. Um, book wise, I would I would strongly recommend Maggie O'Farrell's novel Hamnet. Or actually, in Canada, I think they call it Hamnet and Judith about the children of Shakespeare, but really it could be about anyone's children. It's about family and it's about a time of plague. So that, that one is an absolute beauty. And there's a gorgeous one by Kate Pullinger that comes out today called Forest Green about the life of a man who ends up homeless. And it, it's just gorgeous. And um, you just absolutely understand the ways in which his life blundered along and led him to this place. So Forest Green. Okay. Um, TV watching, I would say that the best series I saw last year was Chernobyl, absolutely majestic and awe-inspiring and oddly gripping, even though we all know what happened. Yeah. Um, and I've been really enjoying um, The Morning Show on Apple TV um, for a, a very you know glossy, gripping account of, of a Me Too movement at a TV station. And also um, the series Mrs. America with Kate Blanchett as a kind of a queen of anti-feminists in the 1970s so yeah i could not have got through this uh, shutdown without tb <laughs> well i appreciate that i appreciate that well i think we are almost out of time i will just ask and i, I always ask authors uh, this question i asked you the last time we spoke and they always defer but i must ask what are you working on beyond uh, you know the pull of the stars is out uh, and we've we've obviously been celebrating and it's available now do you have plans what's coming up next for you I'm writing several things, but the one I'm most excited about is, you won't believe this because it seems a rash time to be writing it, given that all theater has been shut down. Um, and in particular, you know, big shows to big audiences are all shut down, but I'm writing a musical. I believe that uh, theater will come back in all its glory. And for the first time in my life, I felt impelled to write a musical. Not the, not the music of it, let me say, um, but I'm writing the book of a musical. <laughs> okay, so it's in the rough stages now. But it's a musical, you tend to go dark emma everything's a little a little hard to deal with is the musical going to be you know up uh, we're going to be upbeat or is it going to be fun or is it going to be like that was the hardest darkest musical i've ever seen a a zesty mixture of the two i I don't i don't agree that i always go dark say my kids books are i'm sorry (laughs) sorry. (laughs) there'll be a lot of laughs okay excellent well we look forward to that uh, and so, yes, that brings us to the end of this event. Uh, Emma, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, I had a good time. I hope you did, too. Me, too. Excellent. Uh, the Eden Mills Writers Festival would like to thank uh, our festival supporters, uh, whose financial support has made this series uh, possible. Thanks to them. You give them a virtual round of applause, if you can. If you'd like to buy a copy of any of the books that you've heard about tonight, which is just the one. Oh, actually, that's not true. Emma, you mentioned a few books. Uh, that's good. So if you want to uh, buy books uh, or any of the titles that are featured 
uh, at the Eden Mills Writers Festival and the events that have been going on. Uh, they're all available from the festival's bookselling partner, The Bookshelf in Guelph, 41 Quebec Street in Guelph there, uh, or bookshelf.ca for more information. You can also source a copy of uh, The Pull of the Stars uh, through your local independent bookstore. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Emma, thanks again. Uh, it was lovely to chat with you again, and best of luck with everything going forward. Bye-bye. Very special thanks to the Eden Mills Writers Festival and Emma Donahue for letting me be involved in this whole, uh, you know, live interview thing over the internet. It was fun. People chiming in with their questions. I hope you enjoyed all of that. And I, I'm also grateful that I got to turn it uh, all of that experience into this, the 563rd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and available on all Apple and Google platforms and other things as well. All of the podcast things that you use or could possibly want to use. The show should be on those, so uh, check those out. If, you, if you're if you using something right now and it's not the thing you'd like to use, find the show. It should be there. If it's not, let me know and I'll make sure it gets on there. Uh, speaking of which, if you can't find an episode of this program that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my semi-regularly scheduled newsletter, you can visit my website, vishkana.com, and it will help you. It'll help you with all of those things. You can follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative or follow me directly at vishkana. Why not consider visiting patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast? Uh, that would be great. Uh, that is primarily how this show uh, generates income so i appreciate all of the uh, people supporting the show and i i'm just very grateful and if you want to support it too again it would be awesome patreon.com slash creative control six dollars or more gets you access to exclusive audio content so consider that and thanks again thanks again for considering that speaking of thanks thank you to live at masseyhall.com if you go over there now you can watch beautifully captured concerts by great canadian artists also, for their in-kind support of the show, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts. And for all of his help in life and in love and in music, Jim Guthrie. Jim is one of my oldest friends. He lets me use some music of his on the show. I recommend all of his stuff to you as well and urge you to visit his website, jimguthrie.org, or find him on Bandcamp and pick up his stuff. Jim is the greatest. So again, jimguthrie.org for more info about Jim Guthrie. And finally, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Emma Donahue as part of this uh, unique live uh, virtual panel. I used to uh, do uh, real-life panels. I'd go to festivals and record them, try to capture those panels and bring them back to you. And I haven't done that in a while for obvious reasons, I guess. Uh, so this was fun. Maybe I'll get, to, I'll get to do more of these things. It's uh, always really fun. So yeah, thanks for checking out this episode. Check out uh, Emma's book, The Pull of the Stars. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, it just got shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. So good luck, Emma. Thank you again. You there listening. I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.